Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to today's forum on, uh, on the workplace and health. I'm Joe Neal. I'll be your moderator today. I edit Science and Health at National Public Radio. Uh, the event is being presented by the forum in collaboration with NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, both the forum and NPR are streaming the event live on their websites, and it's also streaming on Facebook Live. Uh, let's get started by introducing our distinguished panel today. On my immediate right, uh, is Robert Blinden. Uh, Bob is a professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard Chan School and also at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Marjorie Paloma is director at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. John Quelch is a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and he's also a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School. And we are also joined by Glorian Sorensen. She's a professor of social and behavioral sciences and principal investigator at Harvard Chan's Center for Work, Health, and Well-Being. Just a few housekeeping notes. Toward the end of this one-hour program, we'll have a brief Q&A. And you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. And the last note, uh, you can also participate in a live chat that's now going on on the forum website right now. So first, Bob, uh, we are here today to talk, uh, we're here today talking because of a poll that NPR just did in collaboration with uh, the foundation and with Harvard. Uh, can you, as the poll director, can you just give us the highlights of the poll? Uh, sure. The, the important thing is the poll was aimed at giving voice to working people about the health conditions they face whether or not they see their work experience as really promoting their health or being hurtful. By work, we mean either full-time or 20 hours a week and above. And essentially, there are just three things, and I'll show a, a quick slide for each one. Uh, the first is just asking people whether or not they think their um, uh, work, life, and experience has a positive or negative effect on their health. The good news is about uh, most people who think it has an impact, and it's 44%, think it has a positive impact. But the important thing when you talk about work in America is people have very different life situations at the job. And so if you look at, at specific groups, 35% of people who have some sort of a broad-based disability find their work experience actually hurts their health. Uh, it's 27% if you have a, a dangerous job. Uh, to no surprise in the debates going on in America, more than one in four people in low-paying jobs think their job actually hurts their health. Uh, the 50-hour weekend, you can get in the debate about uh, whether or not these are workaholics or people with three jobs, uh, but they think it hurts their health. And uh, regardless of what they promote on, often on TV, people who work in retail, uh, uh, sales and services find it very, very threatening. So, and then uh, the next slide. Uh, 
uh, experts, and we have them on the panel, have for years talked about certain things in, in the workplace which could actually lead people to have more negative health over the long term. So we asked whether or not their work actually led to a positive or negative impact. But what's important is that in almost every case, the negative is significantly greater than the positive, and stress stands out uh, about this. So basically, uh, people see their jobs as being uh, 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 stress-creating. Uh, more than one in four are having uh, problems with their eating patterns based on their job. Uh, they're having problems uh, sleeping. Uh, and uh, which this school uh, focuses on all the time, a, a lot of them are having weight problems, and it's job-related. Uh, so the last thing we highlight, and then we turn it over really to expert views about how we deal with this, is asking people themselves, not experts, how do you rate uh, the place you work in terms of what it does to try to support your health, and that's the last uh, slide. Uh, so one in four people, and I just focused on the negative. Essentially, these are people giving their workplace a C or D. Uh, and say, so one in four people think they're in a work environment that isn't healthy. Every day they come to some place that doesn't work out. 45% uh, do not think that the food that's available at the workplace is very healthy. 45% uh, don't see any opportunities for physical exercise. Uh, more than one in four have a, a, see their workplace as not being very friendly for supporting new parents. Uh, and though we'll, uh, everybody's discussing the hot subject of uh, workplace health, uh, it's important to realize almost half of people who work are at a workplace that has no workplace health program. And we found that of those, half had participated and not. But a lot of people go to work every day, and this is something they read about in a magazine, but they don't see in their own job. Uh, so the purpose of this setting up for the panel is that these are all fixable problems. And that's what we use the poll as a, as a background for, Joe. Right. A um, lot of issues here to discuss today. Uh, we just released the poll this morning. So uh, if you want to find a copy of it, you can find it either at the NPR website, that's npr.org, uh, the Harvard Chan website, uh, which is hsph.harvard.edu, and or the uh, Robert Wood Johnson website, which is rwjf.org. Uh, let me turn next to uh, Marjorie from the foundation. Uh, for several years, uh, RWJ has been promoting this concept of culture of health. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk and focus in on, uh, uh, for this discussion, on how health and the workplace interact and intersect. Sure. Thanks so much, Joe. So at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we are focused on building a culture of health so that everyone, no matter where you live, what you look like, how much you make, everyone has the opportunity to live a healthier life. And what that means is shifting values so that seeking to be as healthy as possible becomes a part of everything that we do, so much so that you don't even think about it. This means increasing demand for healthier practices in our business, uh, in places where we live, where we learn, and where we play. It's important to think about um, how workplaces shape uh, shape health. If you think about how much time we spend each day at our jobs, and the survey showed that uh, there are a lot of people who are working 50 hours or more in their jobs, 
it's uh, no wonder, it makes sense that workplaces are, um, are very impactful and have an influence on how healthy we are and how healthy we are not. So it's important to think about the things uh, that uh, influence health in a workplace. And it's not the, just the obvious things like health insurance or health uh, care uh, benefits um, or the things that promote health like access to exercise or healthy food options or cessation programs. Far more of what shapes health happens outside of the health care system and also outside of uh, encouraging uh, healthy behaviors. What we've learned and the survey highlights is that there are things that are happening in the workplace that can have significant impact on a worker's health, um, so much so that we're learning more in this space and a big, uh, influencer is stress. So if you think about the stress that a person feels, whether it's because of their day-to-day -day work routines or because of the stress that they feel of having to care for a loved one when they're working a full-time job, or workers who feel as if they have to go into work despite being sick, these are all stressors that influence health, right? We know that stress uh, has an impact on coronary artery disease, on uh, weight gain. Um, we know this. We know that uh, fatigue and, and sleep issues, especially uh, in sectors where folks are uh, dealing with night shifts or are working overtime, that um, these influence health, they influence work, and they can influence both. Finally, you know, it's up to all of us to make healthy choices. But the choices we make are really as good as the choices that we have. If you think about an employee that leaves work every day, that goes home to their community, and it may be unhealthy. One where, um, there, where housing isn't good. One where uh, violence or pollution is prevalent. Um, it doesn't matter what the workplace health promotion effort is if an employee goes home to a community because that workplace effort can be undermined by the community in which uh, a worker lives in. So this poll really highlights opportunities for employees and workers. And it's important for us to remember that health shapes work and work shapes health. Right. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Before we go on, I want to uh, play a, a video clip. Um, to uh, set more of the stage on, on, or to focus us even more on the, the uh, findings of our workplace and health poll. Uh, and I want to talk more about stress. And in this um, brief video, uh, which is courtesy of the Healthier Workforce Center of, for Excellence at the University of Iowa, uh, we'll see um, uh, more, we'll, we'll see an example of stress at work. So if we could roll that clip. The top 10 chronic diseases that workers are affected by that cost money in the healthcare system. It isn't asthma, it isn't blood pressure, it's stress, it's depression, it's anxiety. The mental health aspects of work is a frontier that we need to move into and figure out how, it's very difficult because employers think, well, gee, that's all subjective, you know, because you have to rely on somebody telling you how they feel inside. And that's a very difficult issue, very difficult issue. But it's the number one cause of chronic uh, illness in the workplace. 
so, so that, that idea of figuring out how we ourselves uh, can teach others to decrease that level so we can put things in perspective. Well, we've just heard described the toll that stress can take both physically and mentally. Uh, Professor John Quelch of Harvard, uh, you study this area and you've published a very interesting case study called Mental Health in the American Workplace. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, thank you, Joe. Um, so I think um, the, the video clearly highlights that there are numerous problems related to uh, workplace conditions. Uh, as Marjorie has said, they can be related to uh, the overload, uh, the sheer overload that comes from downsizing and outsourcing and asking someone to do two jobs uh, when previously they had to do one. Uh, it can also come from job ambiguity. Uh, in other words, the um, uh, requirements of the job are not being articulated and clarified sufficiently by uh, supervisors. And actually, one of the, one of the key things that we find um, in exit interviews of employees who leave, the single biggest uh, reason that they give for leaving is that they did not receive good and positive feedback, uh, and I don't mean in terms of um, you're not doing the job well, I just mean any feedback uh, of any sort from uh, supervisors. And everybody who puts out eight hours plus a day of effort surely wants and deserves to have some sort of feedback. So th these are fundamental human resources failures uh, that many businesses are suffering from. Of course, when there's a plethora of uh, people on the unemployment line, uh, it's very easy to uh, be cavalier about and not take seriously these kinds of obligations uh, to workers. Uh, when job, uh, job availability um, uh, becomes uh, uh, tighter, and people do not have, uh, employers do not have that many options, that's when, of course, they start getting interested in how do I retain people. Uh, it's very unfortunate that there is not a culture of health, as Marjorie suggests, uh, pervasive throughout our corporate environment. There are obviously some companies that do a super job, uh, and unfortunately, many of those are uh, major multinational companies that have the resources to be able to do it. Uh, what we need is also the encouragement and um, assessment tools and also the, uh, the resources for small companies uh, to also get into the culture of health um, game. Now, when you look at the cost, we're looking at about $30 billion of cost per year to U.S. business that comes from work days lost due to um, stress-related uh, uh, stress-related condition. Um, and when you look further at the numbers, what you find is, as Bob has indicated, around about 36% um, uh, of uh, U.S. workers in surveys, generally speaking, give the indication that they are suffering uh, from work-related stress. And very few of these workers have uh, access to um, resources that can help them uh, through their company. And even when those resources do exist, uh, employee assistance programs, for example, uh, many, um, many workers will not avail themselves because of the perception of stigma uh, and the fear that if word gets back from however independent the EAP professional is alleged to be, uh, the concern is that 
in fact, that person will report back somehow uh, through, a, uh, through, through, a, through a reporting system and undermine the employee uh, and their credibility in the workplace. And they may be passed over for a job, they may not get a raise, they may be the first person out of the door when the company has to cut uh, uh, the workforce. Uh, people are worried about the stigma associated with that. So these are just a few of the issues that are coming into play around <coughs> mental health in the workplace. Uh, I would just underscore one point that I think is very essential to make that about one in 17 people suffer from a really serious mental condition. And it's very easy to get sidetracked into putting resources into general mental health programs or general stress reduction programs, all of which are valuable and helpful. But let us not uh, take our eye off of the reality of the uh, five or six percent of the population who do have a very serious condition um, that can pose significant risk for an employer and for fellow workers as well as family members and those people really need to be sure that they have a lot of attention paid to them. Thank you. Let me just ask you one question, a follow-up question. Uh, from a business point of view, uh, is this not also a bottom line issue that uh, if, if businesses are uh, were to address these issues more effectively, uh, productivity would be better, the sure. bottom line would, would sure. be Sure. In business, the bottom line is the only issue. Right. And I know that Mar Marjorie and her uh, fellows at the, the foundation have been, you know, strenuously articulating the benefits of the culture of health. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that they've come up repeatedly uh, against well-meaning people in corporations uh, who have to somehow convince a CEO uh, to invest in uh, programs and the only way to do that is to show that there is a bottom line uh, payback or connection. And on balance the evidence, the, the massive evidence supports that there is a... a yeah, and, if, and if anything, Joe, it's underreported. If anything, it's underreported because of the stigma factor. Mm -hmm. uh, so people will say uh, they're missing work for some other reason, not that they have a mental health related problem mm -hmm. for missing work. So there's got to be, I think, a serious amount of underreporting here, and I think you know this is the value of Bob's survey with uh, the the workers themselves because that really does highlight the the extent of the problem. And and one issue that I read in, in I believe it was in this case study was the issue of presenteeism that yeah. people go to work with uh, a lot of stress, a lot of mental uh, health issues. Uh, and they're just not doing their job on the job. And I think we don't have time to go into all of that today, sure. but that's certainly an issue that employers should be looking that, at. That also. certainly adds significantly yeah. to the uh, productivity shortfall. Right. Well, I want to turn now to Professor Glorian Sorensen of Harvard. You head the Center for Work, Health, and Well-Being here at the Harvard Chan School. Tell us what you've been finding. So I think I'd like to follow up on John's comments to really say that work our findings have also shown that work really matters for health outcomes in a range of ways. Certainly mental health outcomes are one way. Um, we also see that exposures to hazards on the job are a significant contributor to worker health outcomes, which has been the focus of occupational health and safety over many years. And increasingly we're also seeing that conditions of work are also mattering in terms of chronic disease risk. 
oftentimes directly, but also indirectly through influencing health behaviors, which we saw in the polls, such as dietary patterns, risk of obesity, sleep, or, or tobacco use. Our um, center focuses very much on the integration of um, what the impact of work is across these different factors, occupational exposures, um, the potential risks for chronic disease, as well as for mental health outcomes. If we just take one piece of that, let's just look for a moment at the occupational issues. The survey actually showed that one in five of the respondents said that they were concerned about some sort of hazardous exposure on the, on the workplace. Not what Bob showed in the slides, but that was one thing that came up. And that included contaminants on the job, the potential for uh, accidents or injury or uh, poor quality air. And when we look at that, if we step back, we see that safety is the number one responsibility that, worker, that, that employers bring, providing a safe work environment. And if we look at a few statistics to highlight that, first of all, we see in 2014 there were over 4,800 occupational fatalities over 3 million uh, work-related injuries and accidents on the job, and that these took a toll in terms of costs of over $50 billion a year. So these are important costs to consider, and they don't all stop there. They spread into these um, issues around mental health, but also in terms of chronic disease outcomes. Um, let me give you just a small anecdote to play around with on this. In, one, in an early point in my career, I was doing a smoking cessation study in a foundry. And I talked to one of the older workers there who was a smoker. And he said, why should I quit smoking? I'm just exposed to all these fumes. It doesn't really matter if I quit smoking. And it is with that in mind, the sort of intersection and the way that these risks potentially travel together that we've really tried to focus our research. So some of our research most recently has focused on healthcare workers. What we've seen um, is really kind of interesting. Following up on some of the kinds of exposures on the job that John mentioned, what we've seen is that risk of injury or musculoskeletal pain or accidents on the job actually increase when we look at things like um, harassment on the job, inadequate staffing, um, uh, bullying or uh, at work, um, high job demands or lack of control, and poor supervisor support. What we also see is that they don't stop there. Those same kinds of conditions of work also impact or are related to fatigue, lack of sleep, uh, and risk of obesity. So I think the point is that these conditions of work are really critical when we look at a range of work outcome or health outcomes for workers. And, and I think the point, the point of the poll is really underscoring that fact. Right. And in, in so many cases, it all comes back to all of these things are causing the stress on the mm -hmm. job. And they combine together right. um, all at once. Right. Very interesting. Uh, well, in the second part of our forum today, we're going to focus on how do we address these issues, focus on solutions. Um, I. Um, have a second video to show. Uh, it's um, we are going to look at the wellness programs at two companies. Um, the first company you will see is Next Jump, uh, a smaller kind of startup company, a small e-commerce company, and a much larger company that John has studied, Johnson and Johnson. Uh, the clip shows how companies, no matter their size, uh, can help employees be healthy. The clip comes from the Promoting Healthy Workplaces project 
which is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health. Let's roll that clip. Health and wellness is, you know, one of our foundational principles. We believe that in order to do your best work, you have to first take care of yourself. And so that's really what originated our fitness and nutrition programs. So I think people come here knowing that they will be taken care of. They will have great energy both in and out of work. We as a wellness team try to help you manage your energy, manage your ability through fitness, through nutrition, through different kind of psychological and emotional coaching programs, we want you to be the best you you can be. They do encourage those breaks so that you can go back and, and actually do a better job. And because the gym is here in the workplace, because the healthy snacks, we're, we're surrounded by them, it becomes easier to disengage in that way and take that 20 minute break and come back to work and be able to get your work done more efficiently. The culture of health has been one of the key things that uh, attracted me first to work for Johnson Johnson. But secondly, it has been in place for over 30 plus years. Being here 25 years, you see the evolution of health and wellness within Johnson & Johnson. Our overall health and wellness philosophy and programs helps me personally get through a pretty stressful job that I have just by giving me permission to take care of myself. It's not about programs. It's really about creating and sustaining a culture of health. The program and services are really geared more towards supporting the culture. To create that environment, there's a lot of different things involved. Um, so some of it is the built environment. So the building, as you walk through, you see health. It feels like health. That may be in walking paths or the fitness centers. I like taking the classes at lunchtime. I just don't even think about it. I put it on my calendar, get up from my desk, and come down. Um, every class is different. You have the opportunity to do cardio work or strength training. And when I leave, I feel energized and I feel more productive when I go back to my desk. Um, I, in watching those videos just now, um, I, I realized I'm, I've seen some companies really make a commitment to healthy uh, workplaces, uh, putting in a gym, uh, offering healthy food options at work, but then over time the, the junk food creeps back into the vending machines. And I think that it really takes a commitment at the top of an organization uh, to keep the healthy choices, healthy options open uh, or going. And I'd like for us to address a little bit of that and how you motivate. Um, um, companies to keep the keep the health programs health promotion programs going uh, but I want to turn to to John next um, one of the um, case studies you've recently published is a collection of uh, cases called consumers corporations and public health and one of those studies was about J&J &J. Uh, from your research how well do we know about how these programs work and do they save money in the end for companies um, so I think if they're uh, conducted on a superficial um, one-off basis, uh, that frequently the uh, results are not uh, significant and not sustainable. Um, as you see in the Johnson & Johnson video clip, we have uh, something like uh, 30 years of uh, commitment uh, through a philosophy at Johnson & Johnson that is very, very important to underscore, and that is a philosophy that puts consumers first, employees second, uh, communities third and shareholders last. And the and just, for, just for people who are not familiar with Johnson & Johnson, uh, it's a very uh, 
a very well established healthcare company that manufactures all kinds of healthcare products. Uh, so, so the importance of what J and J calls its credo, which is what I've just uh, described in terms of the setting of priorities of various stakeholder groups. Um, that is a very courageous thing for a company to do, and it was um, initiated at the foundation of this company uh, by uh, uh, Robert Wood Johnson himself, General Johnson. So why, what, what is the significance of that? The significance of that is that um, according to the leaders of J&J, &J, by putting the interests of the shareholders last, and the interests of the consumers and employees and communities ahead of those of the shareholders, the shareholders actually end up being better off. Uh, and that is so different from what you would normally expect to see in a publicly traded company with the shareholder being the, uh, the driving force in terms of uh, stakeholder. So you have 30 years of chief executives of this company who have never been appointed chief executive unless they held their hand up and swore on the Bible that they would live up to the credo of J&J. &J. And the current CEO, Alex Gorski, for, for example, really models this culture of health in his own behavior. So he, he himself sets an example for employees. And I don't mean in terms of he runs 10 marathons a month you know, to prove how healthy he is. But for example, what he, what he says publicly, and it was alluded to in the video, but it's very important. You know, we have the company gym. You go to the company gym when you feel like <coughs> you need to go to the gym. When you feel like you need to take a break, you take a break. We trust you enough to give you that responsibility. We don't expect you to use the company gym only after you finish work or before you start work, use it whenever it's best for you. And it's that, as, as Fick Isaac, who is the uh, former chief medical officer of J&J uh, &J says in his video clip, it's the, the permission to take care of yourself. It's the company letting go and giving trust to its employees that they will take care of themselves and implicitly take care of each other and take care of their families and so forth. But I know that uh, many companies, and I believe J&J is included, um, offer workers a financial incentive to do this, not just permission to do it on the job, but uh, a reduction in the, the cost of their health care premium if they participate in these programs. Is that a successful strategy? You know, I think it's, um, I think, I think it's like a 20, 20 cent coupon in your supermarket when you go to buy a can of soup, okay? Does it make you feel more passionate about Campbell's soup that they give you a 20 cent coupon? Um, are you gonna be more healthy in your consumption of soup? Probably not. Um, so, you know, th this kind of price incentive, um, which of course behavioral economists love to talk about, but you know, I. I'm not so keen on, on that, all of that work, as a matter of fact, because I think that you know, just motivating people on price, does, it may, may result in a behavior change, but it does not result in attitudinal commitment. It does not result in a change in passion or perspective. It's just su superficial behavioral change. <laughs> 
Uh, Marjorie, can you give us some additional examples? I was on the edge of my seat, Joe, because, <laughs> <laughs> because what we know about incentives is that sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. But what John, I just want to pull this point, if it's not a part of the culture of the company, if it's a one-off thing, then research has shown that that does not work. Um, John mentioned the credo and really <coughs> being able to incorporate um, the value of health uh, as part of the company. We've seen with other companies that this, uh, that this uh, belief in shared value of recognizing that it's not just about returning um, back to shareholders, but also that companies can't be successful unless they show a return on society. That's something that's growing, and one in which, uh, as, as John described in the examples, that, um, that more and more people are seeing, more and more companies are seeing the benefits of that. I want to take a minute to mention um, some emerging research, because earlier John mentioned that uh, for the private sector, um, the bottom line is everything. And there is some emerging research, uh, actually, uh, that came out in early of this year that's showing that companies that are committed and investing in the health and well-being of their employees are showing notable uh, economic gains um, and that um, the investor communities are uh, valuing them higher. Now, that being said, that is critical, that is important. Um, and uh, what I would just say is that um, you know, workplace wellness is insufficient if it's not going hand in hand with efforts to improve uh, the health of communities. We funded research that looked at, uh, at, uh, at the sectors that have the least healthy workers. And what we found is that those workers are in the same least healthy communities. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that if we are really going to have impact, if we're going to, to care uh, about our employees, their health and well-being, and productivity of our country, of America, of the world, that we've got to be investing uh, in, the, in the communities and meeting the, the health needs of the communities that we live in. The big takeaway from the poll, of course, as we said, was stress. Let's focus our discussion now for the next few minutes on stress. Um, t tell us a little bit more in detail. Uh, so first, uh, the poll actually changed my mind on this issue. Uh, so most of the discussions are much more stru uh, structured about in-workplace uh, particular programs. The people who answered stress uh, carried everybody here. There are people who may be in an environment where they're stressed over chemicals. There are people who are low-income working for jobs. Uh, there are people, and we ask people about why they're under stress, who have a uh, supervisor actually treats them miserably. Uh, and I came away from this, it isn't all let's go to the gym. Uh, and if we only go to the gym and we have an apple uh, every day, uh, this is going to go. So my takeaway is one of the measures that we should have about employee health should be their stress and whether or not a company reduces the level of stress. And it's going to vary by who the people are. So if we're talking about police construction, we're in a different set of issues. But employers should have some responsibility for lowering the level of tension and stress. And I can't sleep at night. And they're going to find it's due to different things. And uh, when I came into this, I just thought if everybody had the right program and had five steps for this, two apples, uh, it all would work out. And then when I looked at this, I said, no, these are people in particular conditions which you could actually lower some of that and it has such long-term chronic illness. So 
as uh, the Iowa study said, that we should have a different measure of just uh, workplace health. It should be heavily tied to stress and what it does for your health. And we should look at different things that actually alter that pattern. I am not yet convinced, and the people we interviewed, if they just went to the gym one hour a week, their numbers would have changed. I think they face a lot of broader problems, and that's what should be discussed in the workplace. So it's all about conditions at the workplace yes. and, and stress. Glorian, do you want to talk about yeah, that? Let me give just a little example to kind of illustrate some of these um, issues. So. Um, a number of years ago, there was a really interesting study done in San Francisco with the, with the transit operators. And they were really stressed. And it came out in their alcohol consumption. It came out very heavily in their blood pressure. The company did a, a number of individual-based programs to try to really reduce um, the, the risk to kind of help the, the workers address some of this, the stressors on an individual basis, and they, they didn't really get much success. What they found is they actually did a number of very systematic, broad-based interviews to try to understand what is really driving the stress for these workers point that you were making, Bob, was it's very specific to the work environment. So here what we saw was that it, their schedules were extraordinarily demanding. It was impossible for them to actually stay on schedule. They were working in very challenging conditions, a lot of hills. Um, there were oftentimes understaffing um, so that they were not actually fully staffed. The equipment didn't always operate correctly. So there was a large-scale initiative to say, let's address some of these specific kinds of conditions of work. So let's look at how do we make sure that we're fully staffed? How do we make sure that um, operators are trained to be able to address some of the issues that they have, the equipment that they need? Um, and it's that giving schedules. Them, it's giving them control. It's the giving them control, too. and it's actually addressing some of those conditions of work that are truly impacting what's um, stressful. So it's in a certain sense what we call it's getting at the root causes. Mm -hmm. It's going a little upstream and saying how can we really under um, sort of look at the causes that might be going on here. And we're seeing similar things when we look at healthcare, um, when we look at construction, when we um, look in a range of other settings where it's it's how do we um, start at the top, as John was saying, getting messages from above that this is a high priority, that it links into the mission of the of the organization as a whole, and then having it actually come into place with some of the policies and practices that happen within the work environment. Yeah, and getting the mechanics right, the, the bus operators example is a great one, but it's also about matching jobs to skills. John, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, well, Probably. I was going to certainly add to what Glorian had said, mm -hmm. um, that champions uh, of a culture of health are very essential to the dissemination and sustainability of the initiative. Mm -hmm. So typically at a company like Johnson & Johnson, you will see um, senior executives around the world in various operations putting their hand up and saying, I will lead the culture of health initiative in my uh, business division or my um, country subsidiary. Uh, and that's very important as a, um, a way of broadening the culture of health concept from uh, the CEO's corner suite uh, to reach all 150,000, uh, roughly speaking, workers that are on the payroll of J&J. &J. Well, J&J is a very special example, though, because it's a healthcare company. They, yeah. they 
they know about health, I understand. Actually, it's surprising. Uh, in, in the research that we've done, you know, the number of healthcare companies that actually do not embrace a culture of health is, is really quite extraordinary. I'm, I'm not even sure about schools of public health either. Um, but, um, no no comment. No name. <laughs> um, but one, one, one thing I, I wanted to uh, emphasize as, as well is, is I had uh, listened earlier this morning to uh, Chief Brown of the Dallas Police Department in his latest statement talking about the importance of uh, providing mental health counseling uh, for all of his people. And you know, when, when you have an enlightened leader like that who is saying to a group that you would not expect to put their hands up and say, I need mental health counseling. You need this. That is really a great statement on behalf of making progress in the mental health arena nationwide. Right. Do we want to move to questions next? So okay. we can take a few uh, because we've got a number of them coming in. We've got some from Facebook and from our chat. Um, let's see, this one is from Sarah Miller. I would love to know what a nonprofit can do to promote a healthy workplace with the limited funds we receive. And of the funds we have, most are slated by specific terms set by funders. So I guess the question is about being a small nonprofit. And yeah. So, can do. so I can uh, answer a couple of those things because I think number one is building in a culture of health and showing the leadership that health is important uh, to the organization and to uh, its employees. I think the other, we talked a little bit about, um, about uh, options for exercise and healthy uh, food, but the other is there are ways to collaborate with other nonprofits who are doing this as part of your working communities. So if you think about groups like the United Way or the YMCA who have um, built as pillars of their work and who, uh, for example, uh, the, the YMCA is actually one of the largest uh, early childhood education uh, supporters in this country. They exist in almost every community. Partnering with those established organizations where health is a pillar can make it easier for small nonprofits and other organizations to promote health. Good idea. And, and another thought I would have, if I can just in, in interject this, is that there the, are the no resources needed for the head of the small nonprofit to gather their 10 or 20 people together and say, are there three of you who would like to figure out a plan for implementing a culture of health uh, in our organization? That doesn't cost anything. Uh, so that's where I would start. And I'm sure they'll come up with a lot of good ideas. Thank you. Those are great suggestions. Um, I'll do another one. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Leslie Brower from the Delaware Department of Health and Social Services from the Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health. Many jobs in the public human services sector demand therapeutic use of self to help patients' clients heal. Is there any evidence of the emotional toll or emotional benefit experienced by workers? How do these effects impact the workplace culture? And what works best to ameliorate the stress these workers may experience? Who wants to take a shot at that? 
Try to take a, a, a stab in some of this is not necessarily, I don't have the data totally, but we have done a fair amount of work with healthcare workers um, and certainly have heard that same issue. Um, so, in our work with direct care workers in hospitals, what we've seen is that. Um, the priority is to take care of the patients first in a similar way to that example. And so it oftentimes means that the worker ends up setting her or his uh, needs and concerns aside and focusing on the patient. This um, sometimes means they don't get, they don't take the breaks that they need. They may um, not, uh, they may uh, focus on maybe working longer hours in order to make sure that, that some of the issues are addressed. Um, and they may come out of it feeling uh, burned out or uh, particularly stressed from the burdens of, of caregiving that they have. I think in these kinds of environments, we need to pay particular attention to the kinds of supportive policies and practices that we put into place. So how can we, first of all, make sure that we're, that we're addressing staffing needs so that we're adequately staffed, so that um, we're, they're, they're not additionally dealing with sort of overwork? Um, how can we make sure that people are getting breaks, sufficient breaks, and that the policies and sort of the culture of work, the normative environment really supports taking breaks? And that there's a conscious effort around how do we create those kinds of policies and practices that um, acknowledge the extreme um, burden that many of these workers are facing in terms of the caregiving that they provide, and how can we then um, make sure that those concerns are addressed. Great, thank you. So in, in, in Europe, um, there are many countries in Europe which provide uh, national stipends to caregivers. In other words, if you are a caregiver and you are looking after someone in your family and preventing, essentially helping the state avoid the cost of that person being in a hospital, you will receive a payment from the national government. The, the other thing that Glorian alluded to, but we have not touched on yet, is 24-7 email culture and the increasing legislation in Europe that blocks employers from contacting their workers outside of uh, certain hours. Um, Does you know, any of that exist in this country? There, there, no state government that I know of has an initiative on the ballot. In well, that even are there are there companies that have those kinds of policies? I believe I have not heard of one. Yeah. I have not heard of one, I, and particularly the people who invented uh, the technology probably are not uh, subscribing no. to limiting its no. use. <laughs> uh, Joe, just one quick point on this uh, from the survey. Of people who did take paid vacation, uh, over 30% were on vacation e emailing back to their employer. Uh, so it's, that pattern is not here. And they're convincing themselves that's the way to deal with stress and they're answering their emails on the weekends and vacations. Sure. And I just take this moment to put in a plug for an NPR series that I forgot to mention in the beginning. Uh, we use these polls uh, with our partners uh, to um, create feature stories on particular topics. This morning, a morning edition, you may have heard uh, the issue of sick leave and not having paid sick leave. Later in the week, uh, Bob will be in a story about um, uh, vacation leave and how people are not taking their vacations and the stress that that causes them. Uh, we'll have three or four stories during this week and perhaps into the next week uh, on our morning and afternoon news programs and also more online. So just put in a plug for that. Do we have another online question? I'm wondering if maybe anyone in our audience, okay. uh, studio audience, has a question? In the back. 
Hi, my name is Caitlin McMurtry. I'm an incoming PhD student in health policy. And I really appreciated the examples from Next Jump and Johnson & Johnson with workplace health, but these are also pretty rarefied work environments. And I'm wondering how construction sites or uh, retail and service sector um, industries can operationalize uh, pro-health programs, but also stress management programs without decreasing productivity. So actually, thank you for that question. Uh, our research has shown that some of the industries that are the unhealthiest are actually retail, manufacturing, public administration, um, and also transportation and warehousing. What we've seen is that there are examples from, the, from these sectors where they are improving the health of their employees. So let me share with you an example um, out of Maine. So this is the General Dynamic um, Bath and Iron Works. They are a shipbuilding company. Um, and they partnered with uh, another major employer in their area. You may have heard of L.L. Bean. Uh, and what they realized is that so many of their workers were suffering from uh, chronic diseases. They partnered with local hospitals. They partnered with nonprofits um, to do diabetes education, to uh, educate around health, wellness, physical activity. And what they saw is that uh, after their uh, first set of initiatives, they saw the average weight loss uh, go down by 7%. They saw everyone that, that was part of, the, um, part of the program, they saw all of their diabetes uh, numbers go down. Um, and they also saw, or actually are right now uh, researching and estimating, that um, the cost to the worker, healthcare cost to the worker, this is a, a burden that causes stress as well, they estimate that uh, in five years, they will see those costs go down by 60%. Right. Significant. Chlorine. Add to, to that, I think that's a really good question and gets at some of the particular challenges in some of the settings that we see. Um, we have found a couple of other things that, just to add to that, sometimes it's really important to, um, to sort of link in to what are kind of existing practices that, that might sort of make sense. So in construction sites, for example, we have found that there's, there's a regular planning process that construction sites use on a day-to-day -day basis that kind of plans the work of the day. Well, one way of sort of building in the safety component is to actually incorporate that into those existing strategies. Similarly, in healthcare, one of the things that we've seen uh, particularly as a sort of opportunity for, for building on is, is that there's a high priority for safe patient handling. Can we build worker issues into safe patient handling so that it's not only a concern for patients, but also for workers? And then additionally, just um, one other point that we've really seen is that starting small really can make sense, that we don't have to uh, do a whole huge program to start out to see success, but we can chunk it down and find small successes, early wins that we can actually do on a pilot basis. For example, we're working right now with the VA in one site to begin to pilot a program that potentially could grow, but how can we first learn how does it work within this setting, what are some of the concerns and challenges that workers face at the VA, and how can we embed that program within that kind of a structure. Um, and the NIOSH effort that you're involved with, a total worker program, uh, total total worker health program. 
So Total Worker Health is a NIOSH initiative that is actually focused... And NIOSH, I should say, is oh, part sorry. of the Centers for Disease Control. And the National Institute for Occupational Safety <laughs> and Health. Mm -hmm. And it's a, um, a research arm within CDC that focuses on uh, worker health and safety and is engaged in a large-scale national effort around um, the integration of health protection, that is, how do we reduce risks on the job, with um, how do we uh, promote worker health um, through addressing issues around improved health and well-being um, and reducing risk of chronic disease. The efforts are th particularly done uh, intramurally at, not, at, at the Total Worker Health Program, but also through four funded Total Worker Health Centers of Excellence, our center being one of those four, with a focus on both research as well as um, outreach to communities of business and practice, as well as training, and, and really trying to additionally understand once we focus on research and try to look at the impact of work on health, how do we then translate that to policy and, and really engage policymakers in some of those issues? Lisa, we have time for one more question. Yes, I think we'll just take one more and then you all have your final remarks. So um, I just want to take this one. Low-wage workers seem to report more stress at work all around. I'm sure the stress is amplified by the needs of so many people to work multiple low-wage jobs to make ends meet or to go to work when they're sick and should be home because they don't have sick time benefits. What are your opinions on increasing the minimum wage and how it might alleviate some of these stressors? Is there specific research you might know of that supports the, the positive benefits of wage increases on worker health? And there are a couple of things that I want to pull from that question, and thank you for that question. The first uh, is around paid time off um, and paid sick time. So what we know from the research is that um, having paid sick time uh, improves health and health outcomes. But I want folks to think about the research that shows in the absence of, of paid sick time. So what happens when you don't have sick time? Actually, the risk uh, of illness increases, and the risk of the spread of communicable communicable diseases increases. So uh, that's, that's one piece of that. Um, you mentioned uh, minimum wage. There's uh, mixed evidence. And actually, what I would do is point you to uh, a website, www.countyhealthrankings.org, where what we've done is look at um, policies like um, paid sick leave, minimum wage, um, family time off, um, flex spend, uh, I'm sorry, flex scheduling. And what that does uh, for employees, um, because what we know is that income affects health. And I would just say today on All Things Considered, another plug, we have a piece <laughs> on the interaction between uh, paid sick leave and not paid sick leave in public health and, mm -hmm. and the real concern that people in the public health community have about this. So. I want to thank you for mentioning flex time as well because we did have some questions on that. And all, oh, you can go online to see the questions as well. Right. And you can also, uh, for people who are online right now, you can continue the conversation at the forum at um, hsph.org. Forum hsph.org. Uh, so I'd like to wrap up quickly with um, um, looking toward the future and uh, get each of you to recommend a policy takeaway for. Uh, employers or government regulators or legislators to address some of the issues we've been talking uh, about here today. And I'll just start here on my right with Bob. 
Uh, I'm easy. Uh, I, I would encourage employers to actually measure with their employees their level of stress related to the jobs. Uh, also, we have the ability, even in tiny nonprofits, to run focus groups and have people describe to you what it is that really keeps you up at night. It may be chemicals, it may be the person I work for, it may be lack of leave, but one outcome measure that people should judge uh, should really be the level of stress that people believe is related to their jobs, and that's not exactly the focus now. So I would just say, and I mentioned uh, some of the policies uh, just a moment ago, but the bottom line is that to truly have impact, um, that businesses uh, should uh, take a closer look at the communities in which they operate because we know that when employees leave their workplaces, um, workplace is important, but they may be going home to neighborhoods uh, and environments that are unhealthy for them, and it's all connected. John Kvelch? Uh, so <coughs> I, I would draw your attention, if you're not aware of it, to uh, legislation that passed the House last week to uh, overhaul the mental health uh, system in the, in the United States. And um, in particular, the distinction that we made earlier between uh, general mental health and serious mental illness, I think, is one that I want to underscore. Um, there's no doubt that if um, uh, someone is under stress um, for a sustained period of time, uh, that that can lead to serious mental illness. So there is a prevention component associated with investing at the front end in uh, general, general mental health. But at the same time, uh, please let's uh, be aware of uh, the considerable number of people who uh, are uh, afflicted with mental illness and reduce the stigma and make sure that they are able to obtain the health that they need. Thank you. Glorian? Thank you. I think as we look at this, we, we need to balance the legislative initiatives that are absolutely critical in terms of the types of actions that employers are likely to take and to also consider um, how does that then situate itself within the work environment? Obviously, the um, importance of enforcement and existing policies to provide a safe and healthy work environment for workers is, is paramount. As we then begin to look inside the workplace, we need to look further at other types of policies that really shape the health and well-being and safety of workers, including policies around scheduling, around adequate staffing, around zero tolerance for harassment and bullying, and provision of training and equipment that can really allow workers to get their jobs done safety, safely and with, with the skills that they need. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've heard a lot of good ideas here today. Uh, many things are known to work. It's a matter of disseminating them, and part of the, this effort is to disseminate uh, knowledge and uh, data. And on behalf of all the partners in this work, I'd like to say a big thank you. Uh, and thank you here in our studio audience and to our audience online. And as I said before, you can continue the conversation at forumhsph.org. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.